welcome everybody. Nice to see you all this afternoon. Everyone's happily munching their popcorn, so that's good to, that's good to see. A nice little bonus, isn't it? My name is Brian Runciman. I'm a head of content and insight at uh, BCS, and this is, this is a world premiere of a film that uh, CWP have produced with BCS, Net Zero, A Digital Journey, which you can just see written up there, along with our content partners and those that contributed. And as I'm looking around, I recognize a few faces that I've seen on the films that I've seen so far. So this is a collaboration. Actually, BCS are very big on collaboration. As an organization, we are a charity. We're very focused on making IT good for society, but we know, we're humble enough to know we can't do that one on our own. So this is a good example of some of the collaborations uh, that we do to produce the material that you're uh, gonna see soon. I'm reliably informed that uh, after we started this project earlier this year, there's been three months of hard work gone into it, 30 filming days, 60 days in the edit suite uh, for poor old Ed. Um, what we're going to produce at the end of that, what you're going to see launched tomorrow on the, on the dedicated website are the documentary. Uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, short films from independent uh, experts. Uh, there's going to be a podcast series. There'll be a series of articles, um, case studies, all sorts of things to look out for. And they're all around this most important subject of net zero. Just to put into context... Um, some of the issues that we're going to look at. I think it's always good to look back at a previous example. We talk in IT a lot about unintended consequences. And I wonder if any of you have heard of the uh, scientist Thomas Midgley Jr. Any reckon, any? Okay, so this would be, hopefully this would be interesting then. So <laughs> Thomas Midgley Jr. Was, was quite highly intelligent man. Did a lot of work in the 30s, 40s and 50s. One of the first things he invented was a way to stop engines knocking. And now what he did was he put lead into petrol to enable that to happen. Now, can you see where there might have been an unintended consequence? The next thing he invented was CFCs. Because he found a good way, at the time, to refrigerate things, uh, to freeze things. Now, he didn't intend, did he, to become... I'm, I'm saying this, and I hope none of his relatives are in, maybe the largest mass murder in history. That's all, you could almost say that, can you? The number of people that have died from, from those things. I'm not going to say that, because, I'm, because, as I say, his intentions were good. However, the good part of that story is what we're going to take from the material we're going to cover today, in that we now no longer put lead in petrol. Uh, the consequences are now known. Uh, CFCs, uh, in about 1987, CFCs were, were, were banned for use, and it wasn't too many years later, there was, the, I think it was called the Montreal Accord or the Montreal Protocol, something like that, uh, which also um, restricted the amount of CFCs that were used uh, to, to zero and put other protocols in place to close those holes in the ozone layer. Now, that has been steadily happening uh, since then. We don't hear much about that, do we? Maybe because it's a good news story and good news doesn't sell. But uh, by 2050, it's thought that it'll be back to its original state. So the, intent, the consequences of some of those actions were unintended, but they were repairable, and with concerted effort, they were or are being repaired. So we're talking about things like decarbonising the data centres, the issues of e-waste that we're all very well aware of, energy-efficient hardware, low-code, no-code software... So this series will be launching tomorrow. We'd encourage you, please, to do some social about it when you, when you see the films. Uh, positive social will be nice, but any social will be lovely. Um, Twitter, if it's still around. Mastodon, if that's what you've just uh, 
uh, gone to, Hive, that's another opportunity, isn't it? All these sorts of things. So let's invite our, our, our panellists to the, uh, to the uh, stage, can we, so that we can have a, a little chat together now based on some of those uh, things that we learnt in the film. And uh, later on, we'll open up for some audience questions too. So if you spend the next 20 minutes or so thinking some really difficult questions, I'd much appreciate it. Well, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for uh, being happy to talk to us. So we, we're going to, what I'm going to do, I've got one or two questions for each of you. So if you could introduce yourself uh, first of all, perhaps uh, Rashid, we can start with you. A little bit about yourself, please. Yeah, so Rashid Palmer, I'm Group CEO at the BCS. Um, and I've spent a long time looking at this whole question of responsible computing. And some of you will have seen some of the work that I've published and made available around how we can make IT the, the answer to part of the problems that we've got right now. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Uh, let's do our introductions initially. So, so Helen, tell us about yourself, please. Introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. Hi, everyone. I'm Helen Milner. I'm the Group Chief Exec at Good Things Foundation. So we're a national and international digital inclusion charity. So our main mission is to fix the digital divide. Um, but we believe that we can uh, create social impact around making sure that the millions who are excluded digitally um, can combine with um, sustainability to make sure that we can work on um, climate mitigation at the same time. Thank you very much. Suzanne? Hello, I'm Suzanne Maxted. I work for a company called Methods, which um, works with government to um, provide better public services. So much of what we do is digital, some of it isn't. And um, my role in that is as a, a business architect. So much like a construction architect, I draw lots of diagrams, but I draw about strategy and business capability and data. Okay, thank you. And uh, finally, Anthony. Hi, yes, my name's Anthony Levy. I'm the founder and chairman of Circularity First. We help organisations become more sustainable in their use of IT. Um, that could be advisory services or even the practical technical solutions they need to make a difference. Thank you, Anthony. So, uh, Rashi, could I have to start with you? We saw in our opening sequence the two specific roles. Firstly, the IT industry itself, uh, getting its acting order. And secondly, the role of data in informing decisions to help us innovate. How are we doing, in your view, at the moment? So, look, I've... I've looked at hundreds of projects over the last few years, and um, we, we are doing lots of interesting experiments. Um, and I leave it at that point. I don't think we're doing anything to really drive the scale of impact that we need, and that's, that's where we need to focus our efforts. Um, within IT itself, you know, there's lots of spaces. Um, Anthony was saying earlier that you know, IT, if you added up all the, the energy that IT uses, it'd be bigger than the third largest country, I think, was words they used, right? Um, if, if I look at AI as an example, um, AI is doubling its energy consumption every three months. Mm. Um, you know, wh when you take a photograph and you look at that photograph, do you need that to be that number of pixels every single time? Do we need that level of detail? Do I need to do the AI against that level of resolution? The answer is probably not. Mm. You know, are we actually even thinking about that? And, and I think my, my biggest concern is that we're just doing that without actually being aware of what we're doing. So, so I think the, the, the first step is raising awareness and that awareness needs to be done globally. You know, every individual needs to be aware of some of the decisions that they're making unintendedly and the impact that's having. Um, and, then, uh, and then it comes back to the opportunity that IT has. I absolutely believe that we, we as IT professionals have a huge role to play in this next era of, of how digital 
helps us become much, much more sustainable. Um, and that's why with the BCS, we're pioneering that, that work on responsible computing. We're one of the founding members of that, that worldwide institute. Right? Um, and for all of you out there, you sh you know, if you've not seen that, I'd urge you to go look at it. We're, we're gathering the best practices on what does a responsible data center look like? Mm. What does responsible use of infrastructure look like? How do I produce much more responsible code, which is greener, safer, more dependable? How can I be more responsible in the way I use my data? How can those systems really be inclusive and address some of these digital divide issues that we, we face? And ultimately, how can I focus IT on solving the problems that really matter for mankind? That's what we're about. And I think we can do that. We can do that in a very effective way. And that's why I hope that you know, everybody here and those that see the video will come and join us on this journey because the, the, the time to do that is now. Yeah, absolutely. As you brought up the digital divide, Helen, uh, can I come to, ask, to come to you and ask um, how you see the repurposing of digital assets fitting into the digital divide issue? Well, let's first of all start at the, what the stats are about the digital divide in the UK. So 10 million adults in the UK lack the very basic skills to send an email, to switch on a laptop, etc., to apply for work or to contact their GP. Um, Two million adults have no device and no connectivity at home because they can't afford it. And right now, almost seven million households are considering switching off their broadband because of the cost of living crisis. So these are not small numbers, these are big numbers. Um, that, uh, at Good Things Foundation, we work on digital literacy, so supporting four million people in the last 10 years um, globally. Um, we also have a national data bank, which is about giving people free mobile connectivity through SIM. So like a food bank, but for data, so for internet connectivity data. And then the third aspect of what we do is the national data bank. So I'm now going to answer your question. Um, yeah. So the national, sorry, the national device bank. So the national device bank is asking businesses and other large organizations to donate their end of life technology um, to Good Things Foundation. And we have an for free. So they give it to us for nothing. We don't pay them. Um, and we, we uh, have an end-to-end -end process where we take that technology and we reuse it and repurpose it and get, put it into the hands of digitally excluded people who cannot afford a device. And of course, we compare that with internet data so they have the connectivity and the skills as well. Um, I think it's, it's interesting that uh, I don't think there's anybody, definitely there's nobody in this room, but in most rooms, people aren't going to say that they don't believe that there's a climate crisis going on. Occasionally, I do meet those people. But actually, there's but the average European household has seven usable e-products in their house, in a drawer, in a cupboard, and not being used, hoarded for the future. Then if you think about businesses, if they do the same, which many of them do, then actually what we've got is a huge number of reusable devices and other technology in cupboards, um, in uh, very large cupboards um, that can be reused. This year in the world, 5.8 million phones, mobile phones, remember that number, 5.8 million, so more than half of the number of people in the world are going to be waste, right? And a tiny proportion are going to be reused. So some will be hoarded and some will be put into the bin. If you think that we have millions of people in the UK 
billions of people worldwide who cannot afford that technology. And also we know from the film that 80 to 90% of the energy used in, in, that, in those devices is in the manufacture, then actually it's criminal for them not to be reused. And it's criminal that we're leaving people behind in the digital divide as well. Oh, that, that was thrown into stark um, relief by the, by the um, COVID. What was that called? That, that epidemic, <laughs> pandemic, wasn't it? Yes, <laughs> that's the word I'm reaching for. Remember, yeah, we had a pandemic. Pandemic. Yeah. I, because many people didn't have, uh, youngsters didn't have access to do no. devices. They required to do things oh, from no. home, did they? Um, let's think about the, um, the corporate perspective a little bit more. Uh, wh wh one of the things that I know I've said to you before, Suzanne, that I've always liked you saying is about giving planet Earth a seat at the table, which I, I love as a little sort of uh, a tagline. But you talk about having sustainability briefs uh, in organisations. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So um, one of the things I forgot to mention just now about my role is that I have a side hustle or well, it's becoming more of a main hustle, really. Um, but over a year ago, I founded and lead um, the environmental responsibility group for the company. Um, and what that means is we try to find ways to help our clients, i.e. the public sector, embed environmental responsibility in their own delivery and transformation programmes. So sustainability brief, it's like a question that we can go in to our clients and say... Uh, what's your sustainability brief? It's like a conversation opener. So it either gives people permission to mm. talk about what their brief is, if they have one, or just for them to talk about it, or it nudges people to, um, to think about it. Um, <clears throat> and the purpose of the group really was to... Um, how do we find ways to layer environmental responsibility onto our normal jobs? So I'm not asking everybody to change job. As a business architect, I've been honing my skill set for decades now, and I don't want to give it up, but I want to add an environmental lens or layer to it. So I've got user researchers and service designers and tech people and bid writers, so, and they come to the group, and they, they're all amazing, and they go away, and they develop these ways of taking uh, or adding an environmental layer onto their work with clients. So um, there are two uh, important bits of permission, if you like, that, or mandates that the government has. So every government department um, is mandated to embed the implementation of the sustainable development goals into their planning and their transformation work. So that's number one. And that's more about the services, the kind of citizen-facing services. And the second piece is... Um, about making technology sustainable, which I know less about you do. Um, uh, yeah, so that gives us the permission to go and influence our clients. And that's what the group does. And that's what I say about, um, you know, implementing environmental responsibility is to add the layer to the job you already have. If, for example, and I think this should happen in all jobs. If, for example, you're um, a primary school teacher, um, put food and farming and ecology at the heart of the curriculum. Maybe learn to read and write as well. Um, you know, if you're a hairdresser, don't throw away the hair. Go send it to the tech companies that are growing amazing building materials from human hair and mushrooms. And, you know, add that layer to... Not sure I fancy that, but... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, uh, Anthony, your, your uh, idea is that we can do IT 
differently, particularly in terms of IT infrastructure. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that in, in some of the films they, they commented on this is a lot of what we don't see is the most impactful stuff in IT. It's, it's the extraction of metals and minerals out of the soil, an incredibly intense process that equally enjoys, destroys quite a lot of our buffer, the trees and the, the habitat that can absorb carbon, the manufacturing process, etc. So I think we, we first have to start with understanding those impacts because that drives actually the, the solutions that we need. So if we understand, as I think the stat was, that 80 to 90% of the embodied carbon happens in that part of the process, really the only solution is to extend the life of technology, to, to adopt non-new technology, and to be really much more aware and careful when, when we finish with technology, making sure it's safely put into someone else's hands so it can be reused. Now, you know, the, 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 the fact is that, that most organizations are only just starting to become aware of these issues. Um, you, know, you see a lot of um, CEOs and, and leaders putting their hands up saying, oh, we're going to be net zero by X state, looking around at their peers and making sure that they're, they're putting the right title out there. But they're only just starting now to understand how big IT is as a component of that footprint. And a lot of the organizations we talk to, whether they're universities or big financial services companies, are finding that it's around 18 to 20% of their overall footprint. Now, yeah, this will drive a change of behavior, one, because they've publicly set goals. But what will happen is yeah, government intervention now where we're having to report our carbon and what will follow that is carbon taxes that, that, that people will shift. But there is a real gap in the knowledge of moving from understanding that IT is a big impact to actually delivering these, these positive outcomes. Mm. Okay, thank you. I'd like to maybe think about individual mindsets as well. Perhaps I could come to Rashid here on this question. In one of the films that you haven't seen yet, but you will be able to see on the website, uh, they talk about this little term frugal computing, which I rather liked. Um, we know that um, as, as uh, compute got cheaper, software suddenly bloated out to enormous proportions, didn't it? Um, we're going back the other way now. But are those thought patterns really embedded, do you think, in the digital professional life at the moment? And if not, how can we do that? Yeah, so if, if I go back to the early days of IT, you know, I, I remember actually producing um, my first programs on carbon, uh, on cards, right, and, and having those cards and uh, the, the joy of, of walking to the, the, the card reader and dropping your card deck was an interesting challenge. So you, you, you kind of learnt at that stage every card matters. You could see the card, you could see every, see line, every you see how every see, you know, line of code was going to make a difference. Mm. Now you don't see that. Right? You can you can work with higher levels of abstraction, and and you're writing what looks like a very simple line of code, and you know little about what's going on under the covers. Um, and we've got more and more efficient than that. So we've got techniques which you know, automatically optimize. Um, but even that optimization process takes processing effort. Um, and and, and yeah, you know, I think if you, if I look at some of the the leading universities, they still teach some of the basics of how do you optimize algorithms and how do you, how do you build efficient code. That's still taught in many universities. Um, but in many universities, it's not taught. In many schools, it's not taught. Um, and, and so people who are entering the marketplace come with a, a spectrum of skills from very efficient frugal coding through to just get it done coding. Right? And our challenge is how do we provide a standard for that. So part of what the BCS does, it has you know, certified IT professionals, right? chartership, and, and that opportunity for, for using the professionalism as a way of setting the benchmark for 
what should you expect from an IT professional at this level? What level of competence should they have? And how does that competence not just drive the right business outcomes, but how does it drive the right environmental outcomes? How does it drive the right social outcomes? Right? How does that code become more secure? How does it cater for some of the cyber security threats you might have? These are all concerns that, that every IT professional should have. And by embedding that thinking into the profession, um, I think we've got to make a way of you know, making a big difference here. And that's part of what, what the BCS is trying to do with this, this whole professionalism agenda. Mm, okay. Uh, IT professionals are also citizens. Um, we were talking earlier, weren't we, Suzanne? At your organisation has been around about 30 years now, and you've always had a citizen-centred view. Yeah. This, this couldn't be more important to be citizen-centred on. Have you seen that progress, that, that attitude over that period of time? Sure, yes. Um, gosh, I've known the CEO of Methods, Peter Rowlands, for over 20 years, actually. Um, raised my children in New Zealand in between. But anyway, the shift um, between before and after, uh, well, there are two main shifts is towards uh, kind of user-centric or citizen-centric. Uh, one is the introduction of user researchers in the mix of um, skill sets, so that's really important, um, and also accessibility and inclusion. So they just weren't, they just didn't exist as roles um, when I started in my career. Um, <coughs> but I think there's a further shift to make. Um, well, there's two parts to it. One is that we need to be planet-centric planet now as well as citizen-centric. How do we be both? Um, how do we? make it really, really easy for people to change their behaviours, individuals and businesses. So, for example, there's a recycle bin outside my house. It's so easy to recycle, uh, it would be harder not to. That's how easy it has to be. But at the moment, the burden on the citizen to change their behaviour is this. First, they have to imagine what it is they could do or what they could get involved in or what they could change at home or what they could change in work. Then, if they can imagine something, they have to search and search and search for information about it, and then they have to do something and sign up to it. It's really, really hard for people to change their behaviours. So one of the things that governments can do, and businesses, because it's every layer that needs to, needs to change, individuals, household, community, local authority, government, so on. But one of the things government and business can do um, is to... Uh, make it really, really easy in the services they provide mm. uh, from government and from business mm. to help everybody change their behaviour. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you. So I'm going to be very unfair again now and quote another film that you haven't seen, but you will be able to see <laughs> on the website, where, where a, a chap makes this comment that there is no exhaust pipe on a smartphone. And what he's talking about there is that we can't really see can we, the, uh, the sort of environmental damage it causes. So maybe this question for Anthony, because I notice your web pages have got a little counter at the bottom to say how much CO2 is being used just from looking at your web page. <laughs> is, uh, is there some gap for having some sort of indicator on our mobile devices? I mean, we used to have a little battery indicator, aren't we? We've got our little uh, connectivity indicators. Maybe we should have another one for carbon use. I think there's a real gap in the data that supports the decisions we need to make. The, you know, there's a real lack of research in some of the areas around where, where is the real carbon impact from, from, from IT. There's pockets of it coming to the fore now. We, we had to go out and do some of our own proprietary research, literally ripping apart uh, computer network devices to understand what the full life cycle 
of, of those devices were, where the materials and metals came from, and actually to be able to put the data together to show our customers if they made a decision to buy, I don't know, remanufactured technology over new technology, what the difference would be from a carbon point of view. To actually give that as a fact-based um, assessment. So you, I think you're absolutely right. There's a big gap in, 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 in that data. But I think you know, there's a lot of things that are common sense. There are a lot of practical things we can do that don't require an absolute, a bit to, to your, your point, Richard, that, that, that there's a lot of things that make a lot of sense that we can start now. We don't need to know the absolute today. We know it's going to be better and we can start the journey now. And, and that's very much what we're about. It's just helping people who are on the start line get off the start line and start making a positive impact. Yeah, lovely. Now, we're going to just open up to the audience in a moment. So well, we've got a couple of roving mics we're going to throw around. Before we do that, I'm just going to come to Helen and ask her to stir the pot a bit for us. <laughs> uh, do you, would you have a message for some of the larger organisations that dominate our digital lives, who I'm not going to name because we all know uh, who they are, in, in terms of things like upgrade cycles and, and, and so on, and how it really affects individuals, particularly uh, that are, are sidelined? Well, I think that the most important message is that you're on the wrong side of history, right? Because actually what we all know, it's a bit like, you know, 15 years ago, I would talk to chief execs who hadn't actually started digital transformation. And I'd say, the train has left the station. It's not if, it's how. And the same is true about sustainability for those businesses. If they're not already thinking about how they're reducing the energy and, and increasing the carbon capture for their um their uh, data centers, if they're not already thinking about how are they creating devices where you don't have one chip so the whole thing breaks, you don't have it so that the, um, the cloud pass code doesn't lock out the next person, so you, you don't have it where, um, where uh, you can't take the battery out and replace it, right? That all of these things are on the wrong side of history, mm. right? And absolutely, every big business needs to realize that. I'm sick and tired of talking to chief executives who say, no, Helen, you can't have my laptops because we can't clean the data of it. Therefore, we're putting the whole lot in a shredder, mm. right? They're on the wrong side of history. And they just, we just need to have more role models who are saying that, no, that is not right, right? You absolutely need to understand the science. You un need to understand what that, um, that uh, laptop is made of. And you need to understand the social benefit as well as the environmental benefit of doing the right thing. And so that actually, we just need to make sure that that message gets out much quicker, much louder, because it will get out there. You know, they will change the, their, their motivations. They will change those decisions, but actually they need to do it much, much more quickly. Thank you. If only there was an example of a large social media company that has shed a lot of employees recently, they might have some spare uh, hardware that they could uh, donate. But um, I can think of nothing. So let's, um, <laughs> let's uh, turn to the audience. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is your opportunity. You've been mulling difficult questions, so uh, wave your hands in the air if you'd like to ask our panel anything. Uh, thank you very much. Can we go to this gentleman? Can you just say your name? And uh, I, I tell you what, can I just give you a little tip? I, I don't like those um, answers where people say, yeah, this is not so much a question as a comment. So if you could actually make it a question, that'd be lovely. Thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks. Thanks very much. Can you hear me? We can. Uh, hello, John Fitzgerald, Newcastle University, briefly included in the film, aggressively attacking his whiteboard. <laughs> um, uh, my school of computing produces about 800 graduates into the economy every year. So I'd like to ask the panel, what are the top three things they would like computer science graduates to know or to be able to do in order to make them 
greatest contribution they can towards this net zero goal? Excellent question. Who's going who's gonna to leave on that? Rashid looks keen. Yeah, let, let, let me start with that. I, th I think the first thing is um, they need to be aware of some of the best practices around responsible computing. There's been a tremendous amount published. You've, you've heard lots of ideas here already. So I think a foundation understanding what it means to be a responsible IT professional in today's world is, is the first thing. The second thing is um, recognize that in the world of IT, um, it's not just IT, it's about having a, a discipline which, where you're applying that technology to make a difference. And, and that willingness to listen to understand rather than listen to make my point is, is, a, is a big factor. If, if I look at a lot of um, uh, early professionals, um, they're, they're jockeying for position. It's a highly competitive marketplace there. And, and when you're jockeying for position, you want to have answers, right? And, and few people are asking the right questions and just being a little bit more thoughtful and not coming out with the first answer, but actually coming out with the, the answer that makes a difference is kind of key. And that's all about deep listing and some of those social skills. And, and the third thing is um, the pace of change of technology means that whatever you teach this week will not be necessarily relevant next week, right? Um, and just giving them a recipe for just do it this way is not good enough anymore. They, they need to be taught how to learn for themselves. So just-in-time skills acquisition is a capability that every IT professional needs to have. And, and how they learn to know enough about themselves and know how they learn is going to be fundamentally important. Right. So there, there will be my three just come off the top of my head. Thank you, Rishi. Anybody like to add anything to that one? Please, Helen. I mean, the two things, just yeah. if they're going to further research, um, that uh, recently I've been looking at the SUBAC uh, Knowledge Bank. So it's a sort of global open data. So people don't keep on repeating research. They just learn from others. So don't, don't repeat, don't duplicate, stand on the shoulders of giants and, you know, reuse that data. Um, uh, and then obviously the second one is they should make sure their new employers give us their end of life technology. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Helen. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is a bit philosoph philosophical, I guess. Um, I think there's something to be said for really questioning what we mean by progress and how much of that we need. Um, how do I illustrate? I'm striving to live more like my grandmothers. I was saying to Helen earlier, I'm <clears throat> there are lots of machines. I'm trying to reduce the machines in my house, so I don't need or have a toaster or dishwasher or a clothes dryer and many other machines, but I absolutely depend on some tech. So before we indulge ourselves on building a new shiny widget, let's first think, do we really need it? And secondly, um, the, number one the number one requirement is to protect and recover nature. When we've designed that in first, and I don't mean a, you know, design out harm, yes, design out harm first, but also make a positive contribution then indulge in the shiny new thing. <laughs> mm. Excellent. 
Thank you. Uh, interesting Sorry. answer, Suzanne. The hippie in me really likes that as well. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so that's uh, another. Uh, please. Uh, um, I'm Simon Barfer. I started Blackmore 27 years ago. Um, I've also recently started CIC to bridge the digital divide. Um, my question is specific about the fact that products need to be have recycling and reuse designed into them from the original concept in manufacturing and specifically the data security element of it. And I'm going to talk about Apple, and you saw the Apple products that were locked. I've given 500 devices to people locally uh, since starting my CIC. I have another 200 that are Apple devices that are locked, and no one will talk to me and let me unlock them. I've been given them by the owner to give to people. How do we break through this disconnect between profit-making manufacturers and the reuse recycling element of of the life cycle of products um anthony i think this might be one for you yeah I, I spend an awful lot of time working with some of these big vendors and you know they are ocean liners right they have their direction of travel they are pumping out new product as fast as they can um and in some senses they do a lot of good right there's some of this technology is deployed in really important places but to your point they're they're slow moving when it comes to, to adopting the circular economy, the circular principles, as you said, incorporating that right as the design stage. And they're very quick to, to run up the flag. We're using some um, non-version materials or, or, or getting some of those quick wins, but they're not moving fast enough. Like, it's a tricky one, right? Because I mean, I, I, in one of the videos, they talked about how it's up to the consumer to, to force that pressure. And I think to a degree, that it's going to have to come from there. But I, I think there's a, there's a responsibility also for governments um, to, to, to apply more pressure. You know, money, unfortunately, still makes the world go round, and these organisations make huge amounts of money. So I, I, for me, as, if you wanted to know what an individual can do, I, I, I would look to my colleague here. Like, we need to stop consuming so many devices. Like, you know, sweat your own assets, which is like a very business term, but like, keep your own phone for as long as possible, um, make choices about the, 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 the vendors you do choose because they are more open-minded or they make better decisions around that. Um, yeah, there isn't a quick answer there, but I, what I have also learned is you can't just paint the vendors as the, as the problem in isolation. You know, you have to work with them. They, are, they have the money, they have the resources. We've got to bring them on the journey. You know, I, can appreciate, I can totally appreciate where you're sitting, but we've got to kind of, how do we be the tugboat that moves these big um, ships you know, a few degrees to the right? Um, it's not an easy conversation. I'm, I'm right there with you. But um, I think that's, that's ultimately how we'll get the results we need. Is there a role for BCS there, Rashid? I, I think there's a, there's a significant role for not just BCS, but also government. And um, you know, Dan and I were at, at many of the uh, party conferences. And what, one of the issues that I see is that when you talk to a politician about technology, they kind of put their hands up and I don't understand technology. Right? Hmm. And I think that's not an acceptable position anymore. Hmm. Um, you know, politicians need to understand technology. They need to understand the implications of some of the decisions that technology makers and, and providers and service providers, et cetera, provide. And it, I, the IT industry doesn't want to be regulated. But if it keeps doing what it's going to doing, it will get regulated. Right? And regulation will be painful in many ways, but that's maybe what's going to take. I just want to add one little point. I, mean, I, th I think if there was one thing we would be asking our MPs to talk about is applying a carbon tax, because 
you know, uh, if I get just a little bit geeky for a second, I don't know how many of you know what a, a network switch looks like. I've handled one, I'm sure you have. Um, just one of those devices has two tons of carbon embodied in it through the manufacturing process. That's not the in, in life phase, that's just in, in, in making it. Um, now, if, in Denmark, they've already set a threshold of what carbon taxing me. I think it's $159 from memory. That's going to launch in somewhere around 2030. That would put on a, 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 between 10 and 20% of, of the cost of the product on top of it, just in tax. That will change behaviours. Mm. I mean, it, 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 it's a pretty hard place to sit right now when everyone's going through a cost of living crisis and say, hey, let's put the price of everything up to include the carbon. But if we want to change behaviour, that money can be redeployed in other areas. Um, that's when we'll start to see macro level change, in my opinion. OK, excellent. Thank you. We've got time for one more question. Please. Thank you. Pip Squire from Arc Data Centres, and I did feature in one of the films here. <laughs> we recognise you, Pip. Um, Carry on. <laughs> my question to you is, how do we get more transparency in the cost associated with the, all the data that we actually developing we're cre creating so much data every second which is being stored in data centers like ours whoopee great but actually it never goes away and so i think there needs to be a drive towards managing that data more sustainability do we need to keep i.e do we need to keep all data all the time for all time because that's just getting untenable and unmanageable. So my question is, should IT professionals actually be learning to mitigate against that by rationalizing in their processes, you don't need that data anymore, you can be trashed. Those movies have been on the web for six months, get rid of them. I heard IT professional there, Rashid. I think that's yours. Yeah, actually, inside the responsible computing framework, there's a, there's a structure which is all about responsible data use. And one of the topics there is, is specifically on that. What's the lifetime of the data? What's the life cycle of the data? Um, when should it be archived? And how long should it be kept for unarchived? And then how, when should it be deleted? So the, the very clear question is actually ins inside the framework that's being built. Now, how many people are actually using that and applying that? That's a different topic. Yeah. Lovely. Um, well, I'm going to bring this to an end because we're more or less uh, ready. I can see everyone's looking nibble ready, to be honest. <laughs> so uh, can I say thank you so much uh, to Rashid, to Helen, to Suzanne, uh, to Anthony, that was a really interesting conversation. Can I thank the whole um, uh, CWP and BCS team for the film? And uh, I would ask you please to look at netzerodigital.bcs.org tomorrow and uh, do all your tweeting, mastodoning, and hiving, whichever one you decide to do. And can I say thank you very much for attending today? <laughs>